0: If you have your Bibles, or if you want to follow a TV screen, please turn to chapter 12. We're going to be looking at chapter 12. And if you remember the last section we finished, in chapter 11, we saw that the Jewish people, the different reactions to Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. How many of you remember that? Yeah. There were different reactions. Some genuinely believed Jesus. Some refused to believe in Jesus, and some were just indifferent towards Jesus, which is really, really equivalent to unbelief. Do you ever notice when Jesus makes an appearance, whether it was the time he actually walked the earth, or today when we preach the gospel, people are forced to decide to trust him or reject him. There's no in-between. They react one way or the other. Well, in our section today, we see the fruit of those reactions. Last section, we saw the reactions when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Some believed, some were indifferent, some rejected. In today's section, we're going to see the fruit of those reactions. Something is triggered. When we believed, we we began to have acts of worship, which is the fruit of. Of genuine belief. You see, it's an oxymoron to use the term fruitless Christian. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. So let's be encouraged tonight to examine our own lives to see if we have worshipful actions as a result of genuine belief in Christ. The gospel is always challenging us, folks. Always. <clears throat> The downside of this is if we don't have worshipful acts, we're probably indifferent to the gospel or we reject the gospel. And my prayer is that if anyone is rejecting the gospel or indifferent towards it, that they will change tonight. Let's read our text. John 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Change our hearts tonight as your word is preached. Yes, thank you, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit convict us where we need change. You, but also encourage us where we need hope and strength. So our lives can be beautiful acts of worship towards your son, Jesus Christ. You, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. When I first became a Christian in 1978, and began to fellowship with other believers, who many of them were also newly converted. We began to attend Bible studies. We began to worship Christ with our music. We gave our financial support to our local congregation and other ministries. Helped those who were in need. Used our gifts and talents to serve the body of Christ, etc. I mean, our lives were not our own. We were changed. We were bought at a price by the blood of Jesus like the song we just sang. And it was a delight, I remember those days, it was a delight to serve Him and worship Him. Uh, One girl I knew who had a career in singing opera and gave it up to sing for Jesus was speaking out loud one day and said, Oh Lord, just what did I give up? And the Lord spoke to her heart and said, nothing compared to what I gave up for you. To this day, almost 40 years later, she is still singing for Christ. You see... Genuine believers' hearts will manifest tangible acts of worship. As I said before, there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. And here's my proposition to you tonight before we begin. I want you to keep this in mind as we go through this text. Genuine love for Christ will result in acts of sacrifice and worship. Let's go back to verses 1. In the first half of verse 2 again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. By the way, chapter 10 marked the end of Jesus' public ministry. I'm going to give you the whole synopsis of, of John's gospel. So the first 10 chapters was Jesus' public ministry. 11 and 12 bridge his public ministry and his passion so you have chapters 1 through 10 Jesus public ministry chapters 11 12 part of it what we're looking at now where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead Mary anointing Christ's feet and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem then you have chapters 13 through 21 his passion meaning the short final period in the life of Jesus covering his visit to Jerusalem and leading to his execution by crucifixion. John starts off this chapter by saying, six days before the Passover. This is six days before the final Passover, before his death, which may remind us that Jesus himself is the final sacrificial lamb. John is telling us, That we have come to the last week of the Lord's life before his crucifixion. Much of John's gospel is spent on Passion Week. For those of you who may not know that. John also tells us that Jesus came to Bethany. That's the same Bethany where Lazarus lived whom he raised from the dead. And they gave Jesus a dinner in honor of him to express their love to him. This was the main meal of the day. It was a lengthy one with a lot of time for long conversations and both Matthew and Mark's account of this same particular story tells us that the dinner was given at the home of Simon the leper who was really an ex-leper even though it says Simon the leper he was really an ex-leper, it's reasonable to believe that, that Jesus had healed this man of leprosy even though the text doesn't say it number one, because no one would go near him because of leprosy, leprosy was highly contagious Number two, according to Leviticus 13.45, you couldn't socialize with a leper without becoming ceremonial defiled. And number three, he wouldn't own a home and host a dinner since lepers were social outcasts. Numbers five two. So it's reasonable to assume that Jesus had healed him. So the dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And in the middle of verse two, it says, Martha served. It was her way of showing her love for Christ by the way our three points today in this text is good fruit, bad fruit no fruit the first is good fruit and we'll start with Martha then Lazarus and then we'll go to Mary Martha's fruit, servant if you remember Martha was the one Jesus rebuked in, in Luke in chapters 10 verses 38 to 42 let's turn to that Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see, he rebuked her, not for serving. Most people think, well, you know, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha was serving. Martha shouldn't have been serving. She should have been sitting at Jesus' feet. But he didn't rebuke her for serving. They needed to eat. But because of her bad attitude. Dr. Kent Hughes says it like this. Martha understood that Jesus was saying that her harried, depressed, unhappy attitude was separating her from him. She knew that service can be worshipped if done with the right attitude. So what changed for Martha? Circumstances didn't change in this, this text we're reading tonight. She was serving again. I'll tell you what changed. She changed. Her attitude changed. She was now serving with the right attitude of genuine love and worship of Christ. It seems that the best way she knew how to worship, her Lord was through serving. This time, Jesus did not rebuke her, if you notice as you're reading the text. And all Christians, all of us, are to be servants like Martha. This doesn't mean we're going to serve tables. However, we are going to serve in some capacity. Jesus said in Matthew 23 verse 11 he said the greatest among you shall what be, your be servant. a servant Paul tells the Galatian church in the fifth chapter and 13 verse for you are called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but what through love serve one another and the greatest example of servanthood was Jesus himself in Luke 22. Verse 27, the second half of verse 27, the master himself said, but I am among you as the one who what? Serves. As a matter of fact, as you get to the 13th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus shows them the epitome of serving by washing his disciples' feet. So even though it seems like Mary's act of worship, anointing Jesus, uh, um, and anointing his feet and, and wiping it with her hair even though it seems like that overshadows Martha's as we're going to see it was no less pleasing to the Lord any act of worship from the heart is pleasing to the Lord Christians bear the fruit of serving Catherine Booth The wife of the founder of the Salvation Army was a woman with immense gifts and a remarkable public ministry. Her son wrote in her biography, She began her public ministry when I, her eldest child, was five years old. But her home was never neglected for what some would call, I doubt whether she would have so described it, the large sphere. Both alike have been opened to her by her God. She saw his purposes in both. In humble duties of the kitchen table, her hand was busy with the food. Or in the nursery, when the children were going to bed, or at the bedside of a a sick child, she was working for God's glory. You see, no matter what she did, whether it was public or at home, it was the same to her, worshiping God. What do you do? Do you work in an office? Do you balance a checkbook? Do you take a test in school? Do you prepare a meal? Are you a housewife or a mom? Are you a blue-collar worker? Attitude is the defining factor of what worship is or is not. We've been sold a lie to make us think that worship is only when we pray, or sing, or preach, or anything else that has to do with church. And of course, those are expressions of worship. But anything we do... Can be an expression of worship. Paul said. This in 1 Corinthians. 10 chapter. 31st verse. He says. So whether you eat. Whether you drink. Or whatever. You do. Do it all for the glory of God. Do. Paul also told the Philippians. He said. Do all things without grumbling. Or disputing. Do anything for him. Do it with a right attitude and do it without grumbling and complaining. So that was the good fruit of Martha, serving with the right attitude. What about Lazarus? Second half of verse 2 says, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And two things I'd like to look at that we could safely assume, even though the text doesn't explicitly say it. Lazarus fruit the first thing was he was a witness for Christ now how do we get that well he was raised from the dead in view of everyone and is now a living witness for the resurrection and the power of Jesus Christ he was dead as dead could be and Christ raised him from the dead and now he's a living witness verse 9 says the crowds not only came to see Jesus but who else Lazarus Who was raised from the dead? Dr. Kent, you said Lazarus had become Jesus' star witness. True believers in Jesus Christ are witnesses to the resurrection of the power of Christ. You and I can be a star witness for Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians in the second chapter, the fifth verse, he says, Even what? When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. Like Lazarus, we were dead spiritually, Lazarus was dead physically, Christ raised up Lazarus from the dead, physically, he raised us up spiritually, Lazarus is a star witness for Christ, people came to see him, people are going to come to talk to us about Christ and they're going to see that we've been raised from our dead full state of sin. We are witnesses for Christ just because of the fact that we were dead in our sins and we are now alive. The world does see a change in us, whether they admit it or not. They see a change in us, providing of course, we are living obediently to our Lord. The people at the dinner saw Lazarus alive and well. Your family and friends see you alive and well, whether they want to believe it or not. They see that it's something different. My sister said to me approximately um, about three weeks after my conversion, she said, You've changed. And I said, really? Yeah. No, I, I said, yeah, I did. I did. You're right. I did. Christ. She saw the resurrection of power, of Christ's power in my life. And people will not be able to deny the change. Once again, your new life in Christ is a witness to the resurrection and power of Jesus Christ. It's not what Lazarus or what we do for Jesus But what Jesus did for us that makes us his star witnesses. I only heard one amen. You should all be saying amen if you're a Christian. The second thing we see concerning Lazarus fruit is he stayed close to Christ. He stayed close to Christ. He reclined at the table with Jesus. Now reclining was a custom in New Testament times where guests would recline three to a couch. They were reclined in such a way that each rested his head near the breast of the one behind them. And Jewish culture placed much importance on the evening meal. It was a time for family and friends to come together and fellowship with each other and focus on the relationship with those sharing the couch. I think John tells us that Jesus, that Lazarus reclined at the table with Jesus to make a point. Of course, the obvious point is that Lazarus What's dead is now alive and enjoying friendships and this was no illusion. But I also think he stayed close to Jesus his Lord and Savior. He wanted to be the one who raised him from the dead. The one who gave his life back. Are you close to Jesus? Sometimes we come to faith in Christ and we love him and we're so close to him. But sometimes we begin to drift away and not close to him anymore. There was a saying years ago If you feel far from God Guess who moved And if you drifted From your Lord Go back James 4.8 says Draw near to God And he will draw near to you I want to encourage you to let your heart Long for communion with God again What about Mary's fruit This is the one John Really focuses on And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. That she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me with you. We have a lot going on here. And John spends more time speaking of Mary's act of worship than Martha's and Lazarus's. So I'm going to simplify it. But first, let me give you a little background on ointment. Pure nod, wiping feet and hair and so on. I think uh, we need to get a little background on that. First, let me um, say that it, it says Mary took a pound of expensive ointment, pure nod. Now, a pound was a Roman measure equivalent to about 11 or 12 ounces. It wasn't 16 ounces like we have, and it was a large amount of perfume. Its value was 300 denarii, which would be equivalent to approximately back then one year's wage which would be approximately 10 to twelve thousand dollars and the reason why it was it was so expensive it was imported from northern India where the spike nod plant was growing and that's a large amount of money to pour out on someone in a matter of seconds but Mary did that because of her great love for Christ that's why she did it. This was the fruit of her belief in him. And the characteristic of Mary's fruit was this. you get this. It was unstrained love or extravagant love. She loved him so much. It was extravagant love. It was unrestrained love. This was probably her most treasured possession. It may have been an heirloom. We don't know. But it was probably her most treasured Possession. It was expensive, expensive perfume. Think about it. Would you pour on somebody $10,000 worth of perfume? And that's what she did. Mary gave her best, <clears throat> indicating her unrestrained love. Nothing was too good for her Jesus. Nothing. He was worthy of her best. Martha's act, Martha's was acts of service. Mary's was this bottle of perfume, her best. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that, by the way, you can see this, you could read the same account in, in Matthew's Gospel and also Mark's Gospel. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that Mary broke the alabaster jar and poured it on his head. And John tells us that she anointed his feet. There's no contradiction here. She could have easily poured the perfume on his head first and then on his body and then on his feet especially the way they reclined on the couch. They used to lean on their side so she could appoint, pour it on her head, anointed her body, and then her feet. Now John tells us that she anointed his feet, which most commentators believe that it represented deep humility on Mary's part because for the Jew, the washing of the feet of another was degrading, something to be done by a lonely slave. That's what they thought. And yet in the very next chapter, guess what? Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Next, Mary wiped his feet with her hair. And that was three strikes against her, as far as the Jews were concerned. Costly perfume, anointing the feet of someone, and then the shocking wiping his feet with her hair. A woman did not let their hair down in public in ancient times. That was considered indecent or even immoral. But guess what? She didn't care. She didn't care. Her love for Christ far outweighed the criticism. The quantity of perfume was so great that it filled the house with this beautiful fragrance, this beautiful aroma of the perfume. This must have underscored the extravagance, not only of the gift, but of her love. I could just picture it, pouring the ointment on Jesus On his head his body and his feet. Wiping his feet with the hair. And the fragrance going throughout the room. It's just symbolic of our great love for Christ. When you and I walk into a room. Does the fragrance of our love for Christ fill that room? Do people get a sense that there's something different about me? About us? Or do we give off the odor of the pollutions of the world? When I first became a Christian and began to work at the job I presently worked at, there was this secretary who was a Christian, whom I am friends with to this day, 37 years. You would walk into the room where she was and you would smell the fragrance of Christ and the fragrance of our love for Christ. To this day, anytime I talk to her, I smell that fragrance few mornings ago I got up and saw my wife standing and praying and I smelled the fragrance of her love for Christ as I watched her disworship God. Mary's love for Jesus was unrestrained and extravagant. A couple things I must mention about her unrestrained love. Number one, it was prophetic. Her love love was prophetic. How do we know that? Verse 7. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now Jesus didn't mean Mary would keep the perfume until his burial because she had poured it out, according to Mark 14.3. Now, commentators disagree on how we understand these words. If you read Mark's Gospel, it's very clear, but if you read this one, it's not so clear. And the most satisfactory solution is to understand that sometimes there are words that are absent that should be understood stood in the light of the context. So having said that, if we supplied the missing words... The sense would be, according to Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, leave her, she did not sell it, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, Mary, not knowing it, but by the providence of God, kept the perfume for the anointing of Jesus' body in anticipation of his burial. Dr. Kenny Gengal gives us a loose paraphrase to help us understand the meaning of this verse. Leave her alone, In God's great plan, suffering and death for sin has already begun. And this woman shows her love for me at a time when I am already headed for the tomb. As for the poor, taking care of them is a good and biblical act of righteousness, and you should do it. However, you'll have ample opportunity to demonstrate that concern. I'll be gone within a week. You see, it was prophetic Of Christ's burial. Mary anointed Jesus' body which prefigured his death. She did it in anticipation of his burial. That parallels the account of Mark 14.8. Where it says clearly. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So even though her act of love and worship was to Jesus. It went far beyond her understanding. Far beyond our understanding. Remember in chapter eleven, when the last time I spoke, when Caiaphas unknowingly prophesied, okay, that Jesus would die for the nation and beyond that, meaning the Gentiles. Even though he meant that they should kill Jesus rather than the whole nation perish. Well, here again, God is using the anointing in a prophetic sense. The difference is this: Caiaphas meant it for evil. Even though God uses words as, as a prophecy. While Mary meant it for her love and devotion to Christ. Even though that act of worship went far beyond her understanding. I don't believe she understood that Jesus was going to die. I think like Caiaphas, she was, that was a prophetic act that only God understood at that time. Christ understood because not even his disciples would understand. He would tell them constantly that he was going to die, go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and Pharisees, and be crucified. And no matter how many times he told them, guess what? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Matter of fact, after he was crucified, he's on the road to Emmaus, and the two disciples are saying, Don't you know what's going on? They, they still didn't get it. Can our acts of love and service be prophetic? I think so. Yes. Of course, we can anoint Jesus for preparation of his burial. But I think when the world sees our unrestrained love through acts of worship and service, it is prophetic to them. It tells them that Jesus is alive and is at work in us. But it also tells them that we've, what we've been telling them, that Jesus is coming back. So Mary's unrestrained and extravagant love was prophetic. But it was also defended. When Judas complains to Jesus and basically says, Mary wasted this valuable perfume, Jesus comes to her defense and tells them, in a combination of all three Gospels, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, Judas and the rest of you who think Mary has done a foolish thing, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, guess what? 2,000 years later, and the testimony of Mary's sacrificial worship still stand as an eternal memorial of her deep love of her Savior. 2,000 years later, just what Jesus said. One commentator said, her heartfelt gesture, gesture Looking to the death, burial and resurrection of Christ prov- provides a compelling example of the kind of selfless, extravagant praise that honors the Savior. As the gospel is proclaimed, we are reminded 2,000 years later, of Mary's compelling example of unstrained, selfless, selfless love. Jesus defended her actions. She didn't have to say a word. She could have said, What are you talking about, Judas? Don't you understand what I'm doing is from my heart because I love my Savior? I always help the poor. <laughs> no, she didn't utter a word. Jesus had her back. And too many times when the unbelieving world criticizes us for doing something for our Savior because we love Him, we get defensive, don't we? Yep. Come on, we do. One of the classic examples that most Christians go through when doing genuine acts of service for Christ is criticism of our giving. Most people know that Christians give and give generously, or at least they should be giving generously. And of course, these people will most of the time criticize us for giving to a church ministry or any ministry because all of these churches want your money. And we try try to... We get defensive. We get, we get on the defense and, and we, we try to explain to them why we give and maybe we should be like Mary, continue to give and don't utter a word if possible. Sometimes, let me give a disclaimer, sometimes an explanation is needed. But for the most of the time, when we're being criticized and bombarded by people who just don't understand Christ and his word, sometimes it's better not to say a word. When Jesus was sentenced to death, and was before Pilate. Matthew twenty seven, thirteen and fourteen says, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You see, God the Father was his defense. We don't need to defend ourselves as much as we think. Right. Mary didn't, and her worship and love still speaks. Today and our critics are silenced forever. Forever. Let's bury let Mary's, Martha's and Lazarus' fruit of worship be an example to you and me. Genuine love for Christ will always result in acts of sacrifice and worship. Good fruit. That's good fruit. The other side of the coin is bad fruit. If we refuse to believe, we're gonna have bad fruit. Verses 4 to 6 again. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because why? He was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But, Judas is carrying the conjunction, but connects Mary's selflessness to his selfishness. John was giving us a big contrast here. Total selflessness, Mary. Total selfishness, Judas. This is the only place where Judas is named as one who complained to Jesus about Mary. Mary. Mark's account names the disciples. I'm sorry, Matthew's account names the disciples. Mark's account names the crowd. It says there were some. It's apparent that even though there were others of Jesus' disciples there, Judas must have been the spokesman and the ringleader. Every gospel writer, every gospel writer, when they are identifying Judas, could not help but to call him what he was, a traitor. And even though he's also identified as a disciple, he was a false disciple. This man was as wicked as wicked can be. He walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He watched Jesus heal and raise the dead. He listened to his eternal words of life as he preached and taught. But he was not part of Jesus. The fruit of this man's belief which I think was a mask for unbelief, was betrayal. He was prepared to betray the one he shared and broke bread with. Another fruit of Judas was he was a hip, hypocrite. He sees Mary doing this beautiful act of worship and is upset in protest. This perfume is expensive. It could be sold and the money be given to the poor. He acted as though he was really concerned for the poor. Dr. Sproul says he portrayed himself as driven by humanitarian concerns. Now John, who wrote this gospel, didn't see that at the time. You remember when they were at the table? The Last Supper? Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? The one that dips the bread. He dips the bread? They still didn't know it. Sometimes I say to myself, <laughs> but then I say to myself, we if I was there, I would have did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Their minds were not open at that point. Mm-hmm. But John saw it later on. As he was writing this gospel and thinking back, he writes what was really in Judas's heart. Verse 6, John tells us, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. When Mary poured the perfume out on Jesus, Judas saw a lot of money being poured out that he could have helped himself to. Not for the poor. By the way, Jesus by no means was advocating not helping the poor. What he was saying was, this occasion is special. You can help the poor whenever you want. Sonship can help the poor. A poor person comes in, we can help them. And and help that person, and they'll go out. And five more will come in. The poor is always around you. Throughout the scriptures, we are commanded and encouraged to help those in need. As a matter of fact, if we consistently neglect the needy, we would seriously have to consider if we are a true Christian but the opportunity to serve Jesus in a tangible way was right in front of Mary and she jumped on it because it would not last his physical presence would be gone shortly it was evident Jesus was, was it was evident by what Jesus was saying but you do not have me always a prediction of his coming death less than a week away Judas couldn't even care about having Jesus there All he cared about was himself. The name Judas is synonymous with evil. You might name your child Mary, but you're never going to name your child Judas. The memory of Judas in John's mind is rotten. Proverbs 10.7 says, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Also, Judas... Truth was eventually made clear to everyone. Proverbs twenty eleven says, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Not everyone who says I'm a Christian is a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, and this is Christ's words, I'm just a messenger, don't stone me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, he says many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jim, Jones, remember Jim Jones, was an American cult leader. Jones was the founder and leader of the Peoples Temple, best known for the mass murder-suicide in November 1978 of 918 of its members in Jonestown, Guyana. The murder of Congressman Leo Ryan and the order of ordering of four additional Temple members' death in Georgetown, the, Gu- the Gu- Guyanese capital. Nearly 300 children were murdered at Jonestown. Almost all of them by cyanide poisoning. Jones died from a gunshot wound to his head. It is suspected that his death was suicide. You see, Jim Jones appeared to be a Christian when he first started. And he got many people to follow him. But like Judas, he was a hypocrite and he was a deceiver. And there are a lot of charlatans out there who deceive people, making them think they are right with God, but they are not fooling God. Only God knows the heart of a man. Eventually, (coughs) their fruit will be for all to see. The other group that exhibited bad fruit was the chief priests. And I'm not going to spend much time with them because we have been seeing their fruit since chapter 5, as I've been preaching through this verses 10 and 11 so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus see the chief priest's wickedness now expands as I said the last time the chief priest consisted mostly of Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection so what do they do now when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead they don't believe in the resurrection and now Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead they fall down at Jesus' feet and worship Him and say, you are the long-awaited Messiah. We repent, forgive us. No, they didn't do that. They should have did that. It was obvious. They don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus just raised a man from the dead. But what do they do? Not only do they not believe, but now they expand their plot that includes Lazarus, because on account of him, many are believing in Jesus. You see, from the Jewish leader's point of view they could have killed Jesus because of blasphemy because he claimed equality with God but Lazarus did nothing of a kind they wanted him dead because he was the star witness of Christ's power think about this think about this I said this the last time and I, I still can't fathom this they want to kill the one whom Christ raised from the dead may I be bold enough and frank enough to say how stupid could you be he just raised him from the dead. You know you want to kill him? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but the depth of sin is beyond your understanding and my understanding. That's how deep sin can go. That it could deny the raising of a dead man. Someone was raised from the dead, and they still did not believe. See, people today, and even back then, think they need miracles, signs, and wonders to really know who God is. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, not this Lazarus, proves that wrong. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when the rich man went to hell, he begs Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead, to warn his five brothers about the place he was being tormented. But Abraham answered and said to him, Listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes back from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders Had the living word right in front of them. Jesus Christ. They saw him heal. They saw him raise the dead. And they still did not believe. They couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. They couldn't believe. And they wouldn't believe. And neither will one who says. I'll I'll believe if I see a miracle. Well maybe. But more than likely. No. Their fruit of unbelief in the chief priest's manifested itself in hostility and hatred and plotting death. The sin of hating Jesus led to the plotting his death and then the plotting of Lazarus' death. This should be a warning to all of us. Sin leads to sin. It's a downward spiral that can only be stopped by turning from sin to Christ. And the third and final point is no fruit. If we are superficial and indifferent we will have no fruit. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. After the Sabbath, large crowds of Jews came to Jerusalem for the Passover. This was no there was no doubt there were some in that crowd that were true believers. But I think the majority of them were superficial and indifferent. As you read the text, you can't help but to get that feeling. Superficial because they wanted to see the miracle worker. They wanted to see the famous dead man who was raised back to life. And as one commentator said, they were thrill seekers. Indifferent because spiritually they couldn't care less. They were unconcerned. They were They weren't actively seeking to follow Jesus. There was no fruit with this crowd. They were... They, they weren't openly hostile. They weren't planning anyone's murder. Nor were they acts of love, adoration, witness, or worshipping. Nothing. Yet. However, no fruit can and usually leads to bad fruit. When I preach the next time on verses 12 to 16, we will see this same crowd hailing Christ as king. And that same crowd, a few days later, screaming for his death. You see, their indifference, which bore no fruit, eventually turned into the bad fruit of hostility and then murder. As I said the last time, when anyone hears the gospel, they are forced to make a decision, which is either they believe, they reject, or they're indifferent, which is equivalent to really unbelief. And with each decision, there is either good fruit with genuine belief, bad fruit with unbelief, and no fruit with superficiality and indifference, which usually leads to manifesting bad fruit. And I want to encourage you tonight. If you don't believe, and you are challenged, come speak to me after the service. I want to talk to you about the gospel. If you realize you've been superficial and indifferent, I want to encourage you to turn from that and finally put your full trust in Christ. And if you believe... Allow God's Holy Spirit to work deep in your heart. This is our goal. This is our goal for Christians. To be like Martha and to serve Christ with all we have. To be like Mary and to pour out all we have before Christ in extravagant and unrestrained love and worship. And to be like Lazarus, a star witness of what a life can look like that has been spiritually raised to life by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you God so much that you came to seek and save us that all you ask of us is to believe you God, I pray if there's anyone here that's not a believer the message of hope tonight would pierce their hearts and they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ I pray for the ones that have been superficial in their Christian walk maybe even indifferent, God, they would turn to Christ and say, God, I want to repent of my superficiality, my indifference, and I want to serve you the rest of my life. Thank you, God. And for those of us who genuinely believe in you, let us bear fruit. Let us have extravagant love. Let us have unrestrained love for you. Let us serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And let us be star witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.